All right. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and that is the sound there of a Canadian rock and roll legend right there. Randy Bachman. Randy Bachman and his iconic hit there from BTO, Taking Care of Business, one of the many songs Randy wrote on his favorite guitar, a guitar that has now become famous after it was stolen and found again 45 years later. And here to talk about it now is Randy Bachman. He lives right here in BC, and I'm really pleased he could join us today. Randy, thanks a lot for coming on today. Hi, Mike. I'm glad to be talking to you. Uh, this is a wonderful time in my life. <laughs> I'll tell you, it's a wonderful story, I'll tell you. So, Randy, it's awesome to have you here to share this story. It's been reported around the world here now. So tell me about this guitar. I mean, this is a 1957 Gretsch guitar that I know meant, meant a lot to you. When did you when did you get this guitar? Well, 1959 or something. 50, yeah, 59 or 60. Okay. And you bought it in Winnipeg, I understand. I bought it in Winnipeg. There were several side by side. Neil Young bought the other one. He still got his. Wow. I used mine. I used mine in the Guess Who and wrote and played on these eyes laughing. She's come undone. No Sugar Tonight, No Time, American Woman, then a BTO taking care of business, looking out for number one, Hey You, all the hits. And then it was stolen in 1976 from a hotel room. Yeah, now that's amazing. Now, I know this guitar was really special to you, and you were afraid that it might get stolen, right? So I know you went to extreme measures to protect it. Yeah, a lot of people get a laugh out of this. <laughs> we traveled then just in a car, station wagon, or in a Conaline van, which you can break into with a hairpin, right? <laughs> so I didn't ever want to leave my guitar in the vehicle. So we would go into a hotel room. I carried with me a hop sack, and it was 12 feet of tow truck chain and two gigantic locks. So I would go <laughs> to my hotel room, put the guitar in the bathroom next to the toilet, put the chain put through the, around the case, through the handle, around the toilet, around the case, through the handle, twice, and then lock it with two locks. So if somebody's <laughs> going to steal it, they had to rip the toilet out of the, of the floor and have a big flood. And consequently, I kept it safe for years and years. And on one brief little moment in Toronto, finishing recording, I think the BTO head-on album in 1976, our road manager took it back to the hotel room. I told him to never, ever leave it alone, but he did. He left it alone in the, door, in the, in the room and went to pay our bill. Then he was going to come back. We were just finishing up in the studio. We are going to drive back from Toronto back to Vancouver. And in the moment that he put it in the room and went to pay the the, the bill, yeah. somebody got the key. We found out later the maid, there was a, a, like a, um, a crook ring at the Holiday Inn where the maids would get extra keys, throw them out the window to their boyfriends in the parking lot, who would then come to the lobby and dial your room. Oh. And if there's no answer, they know you're not in your room. You're either having the free breakfast, this is early in the morning, or you're paying your bill. So they would go with the spare key, open the door, knowing there's no, you're not there, that you haven't answered the phone, and whatever's within the door, and when you're ready to leave the hotel, you pack everything up. All your suitcases are there, your jacket's there, your wallet's there, your, my guitar was right there, and it's, they just grab it and run. Oh, so man. suddenly I got a phone call saying, your guitar's gone. I say, what do you oh. mean? You took it half an hour ago. No, it's gone. I called the OPP, I called the Mounties, I searched for it for 45 years. Oh man! And so this is 1976. Your your favorite guitar is gone. And like, how did you? How did that make you feel when you knew it was gone? Well, I couldn't sleep. It was like looking out the window and seeing a 
a giant truck run over your dog that you can't do anything about it. So like, I mean, I, I dreamed of this guitar for years. I worked for years doing paper routes and mowing lawns and saving 2 and $3 at a time. When you're that young and it's like, it's the late 50s or early 60s, $400 is a big deal. Oh, yeah. And, but I saved the money and bought the guitar, and it was just a very precious thing to me. And this was the guitar that Dwayne Eddy played and Chad Atkins and Eddie Cochran and, and Lenny Bro, who was my friend in Winnipeg. And it's just like, this was, this was it. This was, I, I needed nothing else, basically, at that time in my life. Later on, everybody, you've got to have a Fender guitar and a Gibson yeah. and a Gretsch to get the sounds of your idols, because all the hit records were done on those guitars. Speaking to Randy Bachman from the Guess Who and Bachman Turner Overdrive about his 45-year search for his stolen guitar. Okay, Randy, I know that you you bought more Gretsch guitars, right, to try and replace this one, but I guess they never came up to scratch. Like, how many of those Gretsch guitars did you buy to try and find one that was just like it? Are you ready? <laughs> yeah. yeah. When, when a woman asks me this question, I say to her, how many pairs of shoes do you have in your closet? And she can't answer. Uh, but basically, I, I had 350 of them, which oh. was like my mid, my midlife crisis that lasted over two decades. But I was buying it with spare money. It wasn't yeah. my own money. Like, I produced a band called Trooper. So everything yeah. I got from my Trooper income, I would buy a, buy a Gretsch guitar. Uh, there was no internet then. I'd get a little email or phone call saying, we've got a Gretsch guitar to trade in. Do you want it? And I would get it hoping it would be mine. And, of course, it wasn't mine. I ended right. up with 350 of them. Then I got a call from Fred Gretsch saying, can I come and see your Gretsch collection? And this is when I lived in White Rock. And I said, yeah. And so he came, and he said, uh, this is amazing. I've just got the rights to make Gretsch guitars again, but our factory burnt down. We don't have any templates or, or forms. Can I borrow your guitars five or six at a time? We'll take them to the factory. We'll calibrate them. We'll measure them. And then we will have, we'll make new templates to build our new guitars. And I said, sure. So we did that for three or four or five years. So every new Gretsch guitar that you see out there in the world right now is a copy of one that's in my collection. And after wow. this was done, Gretsch came and said, I want to buy your collection. You have my museum. So I sold him my full collection of 350 guitars. It just, funnily enough, it just opened this week in Savannah, Georgia. Wow. The big Gretsch museum, the Randy Backman, Fred Gretsch Museum with all the guitars in it, and it's a destination point for people to go because they want to see these, these guitars. And the guitars didn't have much value because everybody wanted a Fender or a Gibson until the Traveling Wilburys came out, and they had an article in Rolling Stone, Time and Newsweek, and then they did a video where, where to look different in their video and pictures. They went to Norman's Rare Guitars in L.A., and Bob Dylan, uh, you know what I mean, Roy Orbison, Jeff Lynne, Tom Petty, the, the, George Harrison, they all picked a Gretsch guitar for the photo. And suddenly, bam, everybody wanted Gretsch guitars. And I had 350 of them. <laughs> and so the value went up literally 10 or 15 times of what I had spent on them over, over two decades. So for me, it was a great investment. Um, and the guitars are where they should be. They're in a museum where people can see them. And there's even wow. some you can go and play. I still have a really kind of good collection. Most of it's in Calgary in the the Canadian Heritage Museum there. Uh, my 59 Les Paul there that I played American Woman on, it's there at safekeeping. It's valued over a million dollars because it's a 59 oh. Les Paul, and it played on American Woman, you know, that kind of thing. 
Okay, it's amazing that that museum just opened. Like, the stars are aligning here on this story. Okay, now, Randy, let's get to the the happy ending here. How did you find this stolen guitar 45 years later? How did this happen? It found me. Mm. So I tried and tried and tried to no avail. My son Tal and I, Tal moved in when COVID started because they had to shut down their shop. His partner, Coco, had a hairdressing uh, salon and she was doing makeup for um for the movies they were shooting in victoria and she called us and said hey can we i've got all these cameramen and sound guys with no work to do we're being paid but can we just do some youtube so i said i don't want to do youtube we ended up doing it we called it the friday night train wreck where tell and i would surprise each other with five songs we'd never played together before or even played individually and try to play them on camera and it would be a train wreck. And people loved it because they loved seeing us make mistakes. Because everything you hear on the radio is perfect. You sing the song 50 times. You play your solo 20 times. You pick the best one, and that becomes your record. To see actually professional musicians goofing around, making mistakes, singing in the wrong key, we had a great following. And on one of these uh, YouTube broadcasts, when you're doing a live YouTube, at the side of the screen down the right is like a little black column, and people are writing comments like, great song, your last song was an incredible train wreck. Where'd you get that stupid shirt? And all these things are being written down as you're playing live. And up yeah. comes one that says, found your Gretsch guitar. So after the, uh, the, the YouTube's over, I say to Coco, my, my Cal's partner, please get a hold of this guy. We find him. He's a guy in White Rock where we used to live. And he does facial recognition. And so he looked at the BTO, um, Looking up for number one, YouTube, which anyone can look up, BTO, looking up for number one, back when overdrive, and I'm playing that guitar there. Right. And then he Googled somehow on the internet, every orange Gretsch guitar, because it's a beautiful pumpkin orange, where you can see the grain coming through the orange, um, sold in the last 20 years. And because of everything's now on the internet, up come all these guitars. And then he finds a guy playing it in a nightclub last Christmas named Takeshi. And this guy can't speak English. He's singing rock around the Christmas tree phonetically in a nightclub with somebody playing a little drum and a bass. In Japan. In Japan, right? And yeah, in, yeah, in Tokyo. Wow. And so we Google this, and I go, oh, my God, that's my guitar. I can tell by the grain on the front. That's why it was easily facially recognizable was the grain on the front. And so Eriko, being Japanese, contacts this guy's manager, which takes maybe a couple of months or at least a month because – this guy's famous in Japan. He gets a lot of fan mail. But when the thing comes up, 6120 Gretsch, orange Gretsch guitar, we get an answer. So we set up a Zoom, and we filmed all this. We're going to be doing a documentary on this because it's so unbelievable. We set up a Zoom, and Takeshi brings it onto the camera, and I can't breathe. It's like someone has hit me in the face with a shovel. I'm just stunned, and I'm verklempt, and I'm in tears. I've wow. seen my guitar now. 46 years later after searching and searching and searching and finally realizing I'll never see it again. Okay. And he, and you've, you've arranged now to get the guitar back, right? He's, you're going to trade a guitar with him. This, the guy in Japan who's got it now. What's amazing is through all this, and this has to be one sentence at a time, because I say it in Eric who translates it to Japanese. He listens, he speaks, she translates it back to me. Long story short, he says, I'm an honorable man. Yeah. I did not steal this guitar. I said, I knew you weren't even born when it was stolen. Uh, and I will give it back to you. And I go, what? I mean, I didn't dare ask him. He said, I will trade it back to you. And I said, great, I'll get you a brand new Gretsch. And he said, I don't want a new Gretsch. Uh -oh. I want its sister. And I said, what do you mean? 
And he said, well, we are guitar brothers. We can't even speak the same language, but we have a love for this Gretsch guitar. Find me its sister. So in 1957, they only made about 30 of these because they were switching pickups. These, well, this has DeArmin pickups, which is a black twangy guitar, the black pickups that Dwayne Eddy had on his orange guitar. And I'm trying to sound like Chet Atkins and Dwayne Eddy when I bought it. And um, so I call all the guitar guys I've known for decades who've helped me amass my Gretsch collection. And I find Gary's uh, vintage guitars in Loveland, Ohio. And I call him, and this is last Thanksgiving in America, so it's like last November. And I say, Gary, you know my quest for my guitar. I never found it, but I think I found it in Japan, but I need to find its sister to trade this guy. It can't have any mods. It can't have any repairs. It has to be perfect. A 9.999 out of 10, it's got to look brand new. And he had one. He, on the- he says, I'm eating a turkey right now. It's Thanksgiving. I'll call you Monday. So he calls me the Monday after Thanksgiving. He says, I found three of them. I said, find the best one with no mods, with a good sound, and send it to me. And what's the serial number? He tells me the serial number, and it's two or three away from mine that Takeshi has. So it was made in the same week, on the same bench, maybe by the same guy it was assembled. It's a twin. It's a 9.99 out of 10. So the no deal is done. The deal is done. You're getting the guitar back. That is, uh, Randy, that is incredible. That is incredible. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Yeah, go ahead, Randy. As soon as COVID allows, yeah. we are set to go to Japan, play a concert with Takeshi. We'll play Taking Care of Business, which you started the show with. Every note on Taking Care of Business is that Gretsch guitar, played a couple of times, and we're going to do a concert together and trade guitars. And when I land in Victoria with this, it'll be like, the Beatles landing in New York to play in Sullivan. There's going to be TV, TV cameras looking at me and this guitar. It's incredible. Hey, Randy, I'm very happy for you. Thank you for sharing the story today. I think this is a story we all needed right now, and I'm looking forward to when you're reunited with your Gretsch guitar. Thanks for coming on to tell the story today, man. I love it. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's uh, talk about our continuing focus on that spike in street crime in some Vancouver neighborhoods. We've been looking closely at the West End, Gastown, uh, the Granville Business District. And on the show here over the last few weeks, we've interviewed a lot of residents and business owners about what they're seeing in these neighborhoods. The break-ins, the vandalism, assaults, graffiti, shoplifting, general mayhem and disorder that we're seeing in some of these neighborhoods. The Vancouver Police Department uh, stepping up street patrols in response. And last week, we talked to you about the VPD's Trespass Prevention Program. Uh, This is a program that the VPD had started as a pilot project in some areas. They get a call from people who are blocking, from uh, store owners or residents, about people blocking doorways. Uh, The VPD will respond and move people along. I spoke to Sergeant Steve Addison from the Vancouver Police Department. He says this program has been a big success in reducing some of the problems, also connecting people who are in crisis to housing, mental health services, drug detox. He says it's been, it's been successful. But, you know, in this city, it's always controversial. There's always the other side of it. And a lot of people think that this program criminalizes the poor. Uh, let's discuss now further with my guest, Tom Stamatakis, president of the Canadian Police Association. He's a long-serving Vancouver police police officer himself. Tom, thank you for coming on today. You're welcome. Okay, when you've got a situation where you've got someone blocking a doorway, and, and we've heard lots of stories that 
Sometimes people will be sleeping in a doorway of a store, sometimes doing drugs, maybe even starting a fire to keep warm. I mean, that's a problem for people who are uh, trying to run a business or get into a get into their home if they live in a condo building. Do you think it's reasonable? You know, police come along. Police have to respond to that. Your thoughts? Yeah, the police absolutely have to respond to that. But that's that's a symptom of a much larger problem that we've talked about before. And I don't know how else to say it to get some kind of response. But you know, the lack of an overall provincial strategy on how to deal with these serious issues in our communities, the lack of treatment capacity, the lack of supports, and any kind of a framework around the supports that are available so that people who are uh, in these difficult situations can have access to appropriate services and support. Yeah, do you, what do you think of the criticism of this uh, trespass prevention program? And there are anti-poverty activists in the city who are calling for this program to be shut down. They say it's a waste of money, that it, it targets poor marge, people living on the margins in our society, the homeless, and that it's unfair to them and criminalizes people just for being poor. How do you respond to that? Well, first of all, it's not the police or any kind of, you know, this particular um, act that criminalizes uh, people. I think it's the behavior that people engage in that creates the circumstances that affect other people in the community who then call the police and that requires a response. So this notion that you know, this on its own is 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 the issue. I think is is you know, these people have an agenda, and I guess it's a it's a tagline that they can use to further their agenda. So you know, I don't agree with that. I, I you know, the police have a responsibility, not just in common law, but morally and also legally, to respond when when people require assistance. I also don't know how how much you know better or more often the police can say that we we agree that. Addiction is a health issue. We agree that yeah. uh, poverty, mental health, these are all issues that require a non-criminal response. But again, like I said before, you know, where's the capacity? Where's the legal framework around all of that so that we can get people to appropriate services and supports? It doesn't exist. And my final comment to these advocates is instead of making this an either-or proposition, we need more collaboration. How about providing the police with clear lines of sight to those services so that when we are called and we are uh, having to interact with people in difficult circumstances in the community, we have clear options on where we can direct those people or connect those people so that there isn't a criminal response, so we're not feeding people into the criminal justice system. And I will say again that police have repeatedly said across many different platforms, uh, look, we want to divert people away from the criminal justice system. We don't want right. to um, push people into a system that clearly doesn't work in, in, when we're dealing with uh, drug addiction and mental health issues in particular. Right. Well, when it, when it comes to this particular program, this trespass prevention program, uh, the Vancouver Police Department has made it quite clear that when they are called out to someone blocking a doorway, they don't arrest people. They don't charge people. They're just trying to clear a doorway. But, of course, it's still been controversial. Let me play a clip here for you, Tom. Get your thoughts. Laurel Albina here from the Defund 604 Network. She was a guest on the show last week. Uh, They are calling for defunding the police. Uh, She believes that this program is a waste of money. And she says there are better places to put the public's money than moving people along for trespassing. Here's what she had to say. And get your thoughts. If we only have a hammer... Everything we see is going to be a nail, right? 
And the police are just one tool in a very large toolbox. And frankly, we need to fund many other parts of the toolbox. Okay, I know you would disagree with her that the program's a waste of money, but maybe there is some common ground there when she makes the argument that uh, they should be, uh, the government should be funding other responses. But your thoughts? Well, I actually agree with her 100%. Yeah. The police are not the, the, the only solution or the exclusive um, um, response to these issues. We're, we are one, one piece of the puzzle, and 100% there needs to be more funding or more efficient use of the existing funding for a more collaborative approach as opposed to perhaps what uh, the individual that you just played the clip for is advocating for, which is an either-or proposition. We need more efficient use of the existing resources so it's more collaborative, so we can make those connections so that all of the service providers in the space who are responding to challenges in the community related to addictions or mental health or homelessness, whatever it is, are working together to get to better outcomes. And we're not doing that right now. Uh, and it's an inefficient um, system, and we have people. What's better? Um, yeah. We've got all these organizations and advocates and at the end of the day, frankly, if you cut the police, and we know from research that often it's the most vulnerable and marginalized that are affected the most, because those are the those are the people in our community that we're we're actually responding to most often. So let's do something different and better. Let's use the resources more efficiently so that we can get to better outcomes. Speaking of Tom Stamatakis, president of the Canadian Police Association, and we're talking about some of the street crime and disorder we're seeing in some Vancouver neighborhoods. I think a lot of people would agree that more mental health services would be welcome. And it's interesting to see the Canadian Mental Health Association now setting up some mental health crisis teams to respond to cases of people in distress where maybe the police might have been called out in the past and that a mental health, special mental health team would be a better or more appropriate response. Let me play a clip here for you from Johnny Morris. He's the president of the Canadian Mental Health Association in British Columbia. He was on the show last week, and then I'll get your thoughts. Here he is. Seventy percent of people in, in jails in many jurisdictions live with a mental illness, and, and that has to change too. So by changing the response, um, it, it sends a profound signal around the right kind of care that's required for a health emergency. People experiencing crisis and distress for example, someone experiencing a panic attack, someone who might be hearing voices, experiencing psychosis, those are health emergencies. And when there's a, no risk of violence or harm, we should be sending a health response, um, not a criminal justice response. Okay, Johnny Morris there, Canadian Mental Health Association. Tom Stamatakis, what do you think of that? Once again, uh, you know, I've said it before, I'll say it again. The police have repeatedly said across all kinds of platforms that, yeah, mental health is a health issue. It, it, yeah. It's not a, and and this is just frustrating to me because we have police officers and communities right across this country every day that don't want to respond to to issues involving mental health that are that are not arresting people suffering from mental health issues and taking them to jail. We're we're arresting them under the authorities that we have uh, in each province under the, the the various mental health acts that exist. We take them to a medical facility. You know what happens at the medical facility? There's no capacity. Or the police officer yeah. has to stay at that facility for hours on end uh, with the person suffering from a health issue in their custody because they can't turn them over 
to a medical practitioner, an appropriate medical practitioner in that facility. So, yeah, we can fund all these programs and continue to have pilot projects. And it goes back to what I said before about using the existing resources more efficiently. If we don't get to the underlying piece of this, the, the, the capacity in our, in our hospitals, in our, in our healthcare system, so that when the police respond to the crises, they can immediately turn a person over to an appropriate health practitioner for appropriate treatment and support, we're never going to get ahead of this because we drop uh, people suffering from serious mental health issues off at hospitals and those hospitals release them in some cases almost immediately back into the community only for us to have to respond again because they're not getting appropriate treatment and support. I wonder if you think when people say that the police should not be responding to these mental health calls, we should send medical health experts instead. And I think a lot of people would agree with that concept. I agree but, with that concept. I yeah, but but I, but I guess the point I wanted to make is when you have a situation where someone is a threat or a danger to themselves or to other people, you need the police there. Look, Do you not? Whenever there's a public safety uh, component to it or a personal safety issue for the whoever is responding, whether it's the police or a mental uh, a mental health professional, the police will need to respond. We we yeah. know that from the data. We, we've looked at the data in various um, uh, cities across the country. The people who call the police often are those uh, medical health practitioners or counselors or whoever else you think is going to respond. Uh, they're calling because they need help. They're afraid for their own safety or there's a public, a broader public safety concern in the community or in the neighborhood or in the building where they're responding. So absolutely the p- police are going to be part of this equation always. And if you look at, even if you look at CAHOOTS, I mean, I just looked at a, an evaluation of the CAHOOTS program in Eugene, Oregon, where, yeah. where this comes from. And they diverted, uh, after some analysis of the data, they diverted about 5 to 8% of the calls. Even, even Cahoots was calling the police. They called the police over 300 times. And if you look at the data, and depending on the type of call and whether there's a criminal element to it, the calls to police are, are more frequent. So, again, everybody's looking for this sort of either-or solution or you know, quick solution to very complicated, entrenched issues in our communities, and it's just not going to work. We need a, we need a better more cohesive overall strategy. We need to look at countries that have been successful, have looked at changing legislation. They've built capacity. They've looked at all kinds of um, more comprehensive responses. We're, we're just responding to the symptoms in communities. And in the meantime, when you do have ex- a successful program, so if you're talking about Victoria, for example, yeah. you know, they've got a, they had a successful um, uh, community, the ACT teams, for example, the, the assertive community treatment teams, where you had a collaborative approach, including the police, so they're responding more efficiently, they cut the funding to it, or they wouldn't provide additional funding. So those police officers had to be clawed back. If you, if you split it out, how is that an efficient response? If you have a, a right. multidisciplinary team responding, then it's more efficient. But, you know, again, we get back to this either-or, defund yeah. the police kind of notion, which doesn't serve anybody. No, I, I agree. I think we need it all. Tom Stamatakis, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate your time. You're very welcome. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the old growth logging dispute at Ferry Creek now near Victoria on Vancouver Island. This is a, a confrontation and a dispute we followed closely here on the show 
This is now the largest act of civil disobedience in Canadian history. There's been more than a thousand arrests out there at those anti-old growth logging blockades in that uh, region. The latest news on this one, a BC appeal court judge has now reimposed uh, the injunction against protests there requiring those protesters to move aside. Uh, but the protesters digging in uh, saying they're not leaving. So this one continues. Okay, we've assembled an excellent panel here to discuss this issue now. And we want to look at this one uh, through a lens of Indigenous rights when it comes to old growth logging in British Columbia. And we've got both sides of it for you. Welcoming back to the show, Chris Sankey now. Chris is the president of the Blackfish Group of Companies. He is a, a former elected band counselor with the Laxqualam First Nation uh, near Prince Rupert. And I'm pleased to welcome him back. Chris, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, Chris, thank you for being here. Also on the line is Rainbow Eyes, and Rainbow is one of the leaders of the protesters there in Ferry Creek. She is a member and trained land guardian with the Danukta First Nation near Night Inlet, and I'm pleased to welcome her. Rainbow, thank you for coming on today. Yo, thank you for having me. No, you're welcome. Thank you both for being here. Rainbow, let me go to you first. Have you been arrested out there in Ferry Creek? Were you one of those thousand arrests out there? Yeah, I have four arrests, and I also now have a probation officer that I check in with weekly. And I, um, one of the release rules was I can't go south of Nanaimo. So the system tried wow. really hard to keep me away from Ferry Creek. Okay, and do you intend to go back there anyway? Um, you know what? I, I intend to go where I'm invited by the elders that we follow closely at Ferry Creek and for ceremony, because this is something that the government really, um, you know, has tried to take away from our people and control. But, you know, what? they have no control over this part of our lives. Why do you feel so strongly about this situation there? What's happening at Ferry Creek, it must, it's, it's, it's an old story, and we feel it in our bones. I think everybody does. The fight for land is, like, ancient. Um, the connection to spirit is something that has been forgotten, but we're remembering right now. Like, the planet is remembering this connection to spirit, and... We hear the call of the forest. Every single forest defender at Ferry Creek has heard the call of the forest, and it's a spiritual connection. And it's a connection to community and each other and family and a way of life that is so fulfilling and satisfying that we do not find in the Western world in, like, jobs right. Monday to Friday, 8, oh. to, eight to 4 Okay, that's Ra Rainbow Eyes. She is an Indigenous leader there among the protesters there in Ferry Creek. Chris Fankey, what do you think about the situation and what Rainbow had to say there? Oh, it's, uh, well, good on her for wanting to feel good about herself and her wanting to protect the land because that's all all of us want to do that. But unfortunately, Rainbows and Sunshines aren't going to pay the bills, and that's not the issue. The issue here is that the Pachita, the Dididat, and the Huat have asked them to leave six times. Uh, they're blocking prosperity for the Pachida people. 
they are they are terminating thousands of jobs that are on hold. Unfortunately, it's impacting 70 businesses that require that wood fiber to get to the mills. Uh, 40 First Nations on the island asserted their territory rights. Uh, the Apache people are in conversation with the province to finalize their treaty. That's their right. And who am I? I come from a hereditary background myself. Who am I to speak into another community's business? It has nothing to do with me. And the hereditary uh, stuff they fly around, these activists have no business talking about our, it's, in my language, it's called a doubt. It's our history. It should never be in the news and romanticized about. It's actually shameful and appalling of what's happening. Okay, and okay. Talk, you know, okay, let me not, go back. It's not right, Mike. Let me go back to Rainbow. Rainbow, what do you what do you say to that? And we have seen uh, the Pachi Dot First Nation leadership, their elected council, their hereditary chiefs, ask you and the other the other blockaders to leave their territory. Why do you not Why do you not leave when they've asked you to leave? Um, this is actually a beautiful response, and I'm so happy to respond to that. Um, Myself, you know, living, you know, coming from First Nation, there is division in every single nation. There are two sides. And we know for a fact, and everybody listening from every nation knows that the elected chief and council do not always represent the people. These are, um, you know, leaders who have, you know, fallen into a system that is colonized. This is a fact. Rainbows and sunshine is a way of living as well. It's a way to view the life and it's love and light. We will figure this out as together. And also we've been invited by Elder Bill Jones. This is his hunting and fishing territory. This is not politics. This is Mother Earth. This is spirit. This is protecting our planet for the next seven generations. Okay, Chris Sankey, what do you say to that? There is one Pachida elder there, and Rainbow just mentioned his, his name, Bill Jones, who supports the protests. I mean, is that enough for uh, to overrule the, the, the wishes of the elected chiefs and, and the hereditary well, chiefs there, too? Your thoughts? Well, first of all, I, I've seen some of the videos of Bill Jones, very well-respected elder. He has a lot of very good viewpoints. Um, I can understand his frustration, but having outside influence interfere with his ability to resolve internal matters is not helping anybody. It's not helping their hereditary system. It's not helping that young man they want to stand up because at the end of the day, Mike, when these individuals leave the protest camp, when this is said and done, when Chiel Jones moves forward with Pachita, it's the people of Pachita they are going to have to face one another. Yeah. It's not the protest groups. It's not Rainbow Eyes. It's that young man. Bill Jones and the elders that need to get together and solve this thing. But right now, they're making matters worse for everybody. Rainbow, what do you say to that? Um, I know that we, okay, just so everybody knows, at Ferry Creek, before anything happens, we are acknowledging the Pachidat and the Dididat First Nations. We are in contact with some of the council members. There is connections to the youth in the Pachidat. They are out at um, Berry Creek. We have connections. There is so much deep respect for the Pachidat and Dididat inside. And you know what? Everybody is learning the respect and, and to grow this way. Um, the Teal Jones is offering Pachidat $35,000 a year for the logging in their, in their lands. It's just not okay. This relationship between Teal Jones and Pachidat and all nations is something that we're fighting against.
because the respect there and what they're paying for the sacred old growth, by the way, this is old growth that we're protecting as well. This is a global, this is happening in the Amazon. This is happening all around the world. So it, it is big. This is our climate. We're in a cold red. This is what we're fighting for. Chris, what do you, what do you say to that, Chris? And then we'll just uh, fit in a, a short break here, but your thoughts. First of all, all of British Columbia has 50% of old growth, and right across, which is a stone threw away, the, the Hua'at is going to log old growth just outside the watershed. And the amount that the Pachita are going to log is less than eight, eight, hectares, eight, eight acres. It was 200 in total, but for this year. So old growth every day turns 250 years old. There's 40 First Nations on the island that are negotiating logging agreements. One wrong move by the government could terminate the opportunity for Indigenous people to partake in a resource-based economy. This is how dangerous this is. This is the, they're playing with people's lives here, and it's wrong. Okay. And uh, she could talk all she wants about the spirit and the ancestors and all that. I, I don't, you know what, there's another discussion for that. You are standing in the way of prosperity. Mm-mm. And, Mm-mm. You know, and the other thing to that, Mike, is they've raised $1.7 million in crowdfunding. They're blocking $1.2 million of down trees on the ground that the Pachira people cannot get to. And they're okay, living okay. high off the hog while the Pachira people are starving for work in Rain, an economy. Rain. Okay, Rainbow, I know you want to respond to that. Go ahead. Yeah, um, honestly, if, if, if all of the Pachidat want it, if every single mess, a member wants it, they can have it, but they don't. And this is about spirit. This is about changing the system that we live in with, from spirit. Everybody listening must hear this. If you feel a call to protect your forest and protect our Mother Earth, we must do it now. So, the Earth needs us right now. So, so would you say, Rainbow, that when you say if, if all the Pachidot people wanted this, that would be fine. So you're saying that there has to be unanimity, like every member of this First Nation, the Pachidot First Nation, mm-hmm. must, must be in agreement. So if there's one person ab- abstaining or, or on the other side then it's okay for you for you and the other protesters to block the roads there? Okay, if there was ever, like, there has never been a vote for this logging that we have, we, there hasn't been. If one person didn't want it, we would be okay with, no, they could log it. But there's never been a vote. This is always, just like our government, there's, they go, the chief and council have gone ahead without, clear consensus from the members we've talked okay. to, we've talked to some of the members it's never been clear things have just started happening you know without a clear vote all right welcome back to the show as we continue talking about old growth logging in british columbia the dispute at ferry creek on vancouver island more than 1,000 arrests there and we're talking about indigenous rights when it comes to logging and we have two indigenous leaders on our panel uh, today, they're on opposite sides of this logging debate. Chris Sankey is a former elected councillor with Alaxqualam First Nation near Prince Rupert. Rainbow Eyes is with the Danukta First Nation near Knight Inlet. Uh, let's go to your calls. I ask you to keep your calls res- respectful, okay? I'm not going to tolerate any, any hate here. Ron and Langley, hi. How are you doing, Mike? I'm good. Go ahead. Did I hear correctly that First Nations is getting paid $35,000 a year for this mm-hmm. logging company to take down old growth? 
Rainbow, what is your source for that? I've never seen that number before. It was just I just heard it from. I know. I'm not. I'm, hang on. Hang on. I'm talking to. I'm talking to our panelists here who gave out that number. Rainbow. Um, this is all public information, and it's actually online. You can you can look it up online. That's where we found this information, and we're sharing it because it's insanity. Hatchie Dad is getting thirty five thousand dollars a year. Chris Sankey. Uh, look, uh, there are partners in this logging outfit. I am not look. I have not looked at their business model from all accounts. And speaking with Teal and some some people from there, uh, it's not thirty five thousand dollars a year. They're they're going to be only getting from that. That would be insanity. And I'm pretty sure the Patched Up people are smarter than that. And I believe Teal Jones would never do that to another community. But look, at the end of the day, there's other there's there's forty other communities going to be no- negotiating ownership agreements. And uh, that's for them to disclose, and it's up to them to get that to get those deals done. But it is not thirty five thousand a year. Okay, I mean, that's no, that's not true. So it was twenty two hundred and fifty thousand dollars last year, one time payment, and then after that, it's going to be thirty five thousand dollars a year. Okay, well, we'll ask the, we'll ask the Pachida First Nation about that. Lawrence in North Vancouver, hi. Hi, I'd be ashamed of the. From what I've heard, there aren't that many old-growth forests left in this province. You know, and this is a big province. There must be other areas they, they can log. I can, uh, they don't pass a law where the old-growth forests are totally left alone. Hey, hey Chris, how much old-growth is left? There's 50%, and there's, uh, there, there's hundreds of thousands of hectares. Old-growth turns 250 years every day. Rainbow, what do you say to that? That's been debunked as government propaganda. That is not true. And they're logging um, to add up to the watersheds, right up to the water, which they shouldn't be doing everywhere. And it's, it's a fact. You can look it up. It's so much less than that. The government lies, lies right to us. The news does, too. So do the research. Okay, we've only got like a, just a minute and a bit left here. Let me just uh, let, give both of you an opportunity to wrap up. Rainbow, what would you like to say? Like, what's the main message you want the listeners to hear today? Go ahead. Okay, so yeah, like the chiefs and councils, they've made the chiefs and councils to go around the memberships from time to time, just like the governments. We know this. The Pachidat has its own longer company and their sawmill. Um, what the people need to do is they need to claim their whole territories. Um, the, ch- the Grand Chief has said the government's time in the woods is over. We need to listen to this. These chiefs and council are under the thumb of the government and the system and money. They need to take control of the resources and find ways to make money other than connect and it is spirit it is okay spirit. okay hang on. Is, let me, everything is okay hang on rainbow let me let, give me give chris a chance to finish up chris you got 30 seconds here go ahead look uh what's happening in the country in this province right now is that the elected body and the regulatory body are coming together to utilize our traditional knowledge combined with today's business experience and innovation and at the end of the day the province has got to realize that undrip for which they pushed is the right of the Pachidab people to log the sticks of, uh, of trees that are in their backyard. And further to that, look, at the end of the day, I understand they have this committee out there, and four of the five committees on this old growth committee are four of the five of them are from the Sierra Club, which is wrong. 
And they need to change okay. that. And I hope the NDP is listening because that could harm a lot of communities and businesses in this country. Okay. Uh, the Sierra Club, I've got to finish here, Mike. The Sierra Club is boasting about this panel, but two of them are actually husband and wife. That's got thank, to change. Thank you, Chris. Is- thank you, Chris. I hate, I'm not cutting you off. We're just out of time. But I want to thank both of you. Chris Sankey there, former elected councillor, Lax Kalam First Nation, Rainbow Eyes, Danukta First Nation, near Night Inlet.